Hi, I'm Pinny. I'm Astrid. And welcome to It's a Continent, the podcast that decolonizes history one story at a time. So we're here to challenge the common misconception that Africa is a country and essentially appreciate the identity of each nation. Um, And through each episode, we'll be exploring key historical moments which have shaped the continent. Hello and welcome to another episode of It's a Continent. How's it going? Yeah, it's going good. It's okay. Yeah. Just keep swimming. That's the... uh... (laughs) (laughs) I've not seen that in forever. Just keep swimming. Just Just keep keep swimming. (laughs) That is the motto. (laughs) Honestly, I've had such a mad week. I definitely feel like I want to get into construction. Okay, a lot of DIY SOS? Yeah, that's what like all week has been like DIY. I can now take out flooring, carpets, self-taught off YouTube. Well, when I am able to get that mortgage eventually, I will be coming to you. Call me up, call me up. I just now need to treat myself to a drill. I was actually (laughs) on Amazon yesterday being like, because I've got a little toolbox, you know, a bit of a starter pack but there's no drill. And then I was literally like, why do I need to call someone? Why don't I just get a drill myself? Wow. I'll I'll YouTube it. This YouTube has really, yeah, changed the game. It has switched things up. I'm not sure if I'm doing it correctly, but it's giving the illusion that it it looks okay. (laughs) It looks okay. So I will start, I'm treating myself to a drill this weekend. That's what, (laughs) that is my plan. These are the lockdown shenanigans. Mm So let's start off with this week's African Pride. And this is a section that we do just recognising the amazing things that Africans are doing on the continent and also influencing the rest of the world. So this week's African Pride is going to Herman Chinnery Hesse, a Ghanaian technology entrepreneur and founder of the Soft Tribe, the oldest and largest software company in Ghana. Now, as we know, the few countries that we've covered on this episode so far Many African countries have a long-standing culture of oral storytelling, which informs and entertains generations. And Chinnery Hesse is now looking to keep this tradition alive through modern technology via a new audiobooks app. This app is called African Echoes. It's tips to launch in March and will feature up to 50 original and unpublished African works that will be translated into multiple languages such as Swahili, Yoruba and Amharic. This will allow those from all walks of life to tell their stories and storytellers will be able to pitch their stories to the app by sending in voice notes in their native language before being recorded in a studio. It will be available on Android and will cost the equivalent of a dollar to download each story from action and history to autobiographies and romance. Waiting for the African Bridgerton there. (laughs) The African Duke. Well, he is African anyway, so... He is. He's from Zimbabwe. Yeah, exactly. Zimbabwe. And in the words of Herman Chinnery Hesse himself, in today's world, the oral tradition can be translated into electronic audio. So suddenly, we have Africa's oral tradition on steroids, which is what we're trying to achieve here. We would like a situation where non-Africans can listen to African stories told by Africans in an African way. This idea is incredible yeah I so wish I came up with it especially being able to send it via voice note and actually share it in your native language oh my gosh this is it's good like he's definitely a one-up on audible there oh yeah definitely like (laughs) imagine the stories people will tell yeah my mum would love this kind of thing she'll be like I don't have time for like writing it sending a voice note (laughs) get it all done I'm published guys I'm published (laughs) (laughs) catch me on African Echoes yeah (laughs) 
<laughs> but yeah, definitely go and check it out when it launches. Um, if you happen to have access to the app. Amazing. Love it. In today's episode, we are covering Somalia, but not in the usual tropes you see in here. Uh, We'll be discussing Somalia's scientific communism, which was the period between 1969 to 1991. This movement was led by Mohamed Syed Barre, a Somali communist politician. Under the Supreme Revolutionary Council, Barre transformed Somalia into a one-party Marxist-Lenist communist state, renaming the country the Somali Democratic Republic and adopting a concept called scientific socialism with support from the Soviet Union. Whilst Barre's rule had initial success, modernization, nationalization, and anti-tribalism, defeat in the Ogaden War triggered Somali into rebellion and dissatisfaction. Somalia is located in what is known as the Horn of Africa, the easternmost projection of the continent. The country borders Kenya and Ethiopia to the west, Djibouti to the northwest, and bodies of water, the Gulf of Aden to the north and the Indian Ocean to the east. Somalia occupies an important geopolitical location as it sits between African countries and those of Arabia and southwestern Asia. Going BC, so that is before colonialism, those who lived in the Somali region were ethnic Kushites from southern Ethiopia. This group is in fact divided into various other ethnic groups, which are still fought over today. Early villages put Somalis in contact with Arab traders as they travelled through the Red Sea and the Indian Ocean. The Somali people were among the first people to convert to Islam. Somalia enjoyed peaceful relations with their Christian neighbours, Ethiopia. Somalia promised never to attack Ethiopia. However, in 1414, Yeshak I came to the throne in Ethiopia and attacked Somalia and Djibouti, in the process executing the Somali king. The first written record of the word Somali was in King Yeshak I's victory song. We're just going to skip a few centuries now. Quite a lot of centuries. <laughs> We're now in 1875. Yeah. <laughs> so by this time, the British already controlled Yemen's port city, Aden, and wanted to get their hands on Somalia too, as the Red Sea was seen as vital to shipping across to Britain's colony, India. The French wanted to also grab a slice of the pie as they wanted access to inland coal deposits. They also wanted to block the way of the British Empire's desire to build a transcontinental railway through Africa's east coast. Italy was also involved here as they had FOMO, who Obviously, didn't have FOMO but... at this time. Like, I can't didn't all my friends are colonised and I'm not. I just want to be a part of it. Why can't I be like everybody else? <laughs> yeah. The country had recently become united and were happy to take land that other European countries weren't fighting over. So they took the southern portion of Somalia. So even if people don't want it, we'll still take it. We're <laughs> part of it, guys. I'm here, <laughs> I'm here for the tea, guys. Somalia was granted independence in 1959 and Somalis threw themselves into politics with women being active participants as well. However, there were several issues post-independence, as always, right? Mm-hmm. Um, there was a north-south economic divide and Ogaden, a disputed area, sat in the hands of Ethiopia. And whilst the north of the country spoke English, southern Somalia spoke Italian. The areas had different currencies as well. Then perhaps in hindsight, it could have been better to create two separate countries rather than one. Somalis received their initial political education under British and Italian rule. And anti-imperialist parties rejected the West and aligned with the Soviet Union. By the mid-1960s, Russia had a formal military relationship with Somalia through extensive training. An exchange program took place where hundreds of soldiers 
went from one country to the other for training or looking to be trained. Somali officers began to gain a Marxist worldview as a result of identifying with the Soviet military. Quite interesting though, it's cozying up to the Soviets. Like normally it would be, oh my gosh, how, why are they doing that? But yeah, it's, it, it, well, it's, it started off. <laughs> it started <laughs> off positive. Yeah. Started, well, yeah, it started off well. It's interesting that take it around whether it should have been two separate countries as well. Yeah. In terms of having that English speaking part in Italian. But then it's like the way in which these countries were carved up, would mm. you have had your next door neighbour speaking? Do you know what I mean? Like, yeah, it, just... it wouldn't make sense, does it? I mean, it's quite similar to the episode we did uh, on Cameroon when, of course, you had um, South Cameroons and you had you know, the British side, you mm. had the French side. And even though they were sort of one country after independence, it was there is a lot of tension going on there. And there is, to this day, tension going on with Somali and Somaliland, which there's a number of factors for that, but it could have been a root reason. Yeah, behind it as well, because it's not that long. 1959, getting your independence and trying to figure out your identity as well. Definitely. And by the time we approach the late 1960s, Somali democracy began to crumble just 10 years later. The scene was set for any guesses as to what political action? (sighs) It's got to be a classic coup, doesn't it? Of course it is. It's a coup. On October the 21st, 1969, a bloodless coup took place. But far left, far left, note, military officers of the Supreme Revolutionary Council, the SRC, led by Syed Bari. They stormed the capital city, Mogadishu, and ordered the country's leaders to resign. The Supreme Revolutionary Council had the goal of ending tribalism, nepotism, corruption and misrule. Which sounds great, isn't it? Is that, yeah, I'm all for that. Fantastic. And uh, they also supported Somali unification and national liberation movements. Barre set out a new tone for the country in his first speech following the coup. Intervention by the armed forces was inevitable, he said. I would like to ask all Somalis to come out and build their nation, a strong nation, to use all their efforts, energy, wealth and brains in developing their country. The imperialists, who always want to see people in hunger, disease and ignorance, will oppose us in order that we may beg them. Let us join hands in crushing the enemy of our land. So they were actually initial ideas of bringing the country together, trying to find a way. Okay, it was done through a coup, but... <laughs> it's, it's, sometimes you have to just force your way in. Um, Do you know what I mean? Advocating a coup, but I mean, it was bloodless. So there wasn't loss of life in this. There wasn't lo- loss, of, loss of life. So the general, we don't agree how it happened, but the general gist of kind of what they stood for. We yeah, can, we're, we we're can, here for it. We're here, we're here for, for that. We can so deal far, that. so good. SRC was a governmental body that ruled Somalia with Syed Barre as its leader. The SRC was at the helm of rapid economic and social development for Somalia. By November 1st, 1969, Barre suspended the Somalian constitution, parliament, banned political parties and abolished the Supreme Court. The country was renamed the Somalia Democratic Republic. Okay. This is where we then see that just genuine sense of, you know what, I just want it all to be mine. Nobody else can have their say, really. I've brought this core concept of togetherness. You can't have other people with different ideas coming in here. We cannot have other parties. It's a democratic republic, but there are no parties (laughs) that you can choose from. (laughs) The democratic bit is silent. (laughs) (laughs) At the time, there was a sense of optimism amongst Somalis 
who were jubilant with students outside running in the streets, throwing our books, in the words of Mohammed Abdul Rahman, who later on went to work for the Ministry of Livestock. Barre quickly began implementing his plan to build a socialist society with a wealth sharing ideology. Somali people were ordered to call each other Jale, meaning comrade. At the same time, Barre took on a title meaning victorious leader. So yeah, we've got that despot. That despot is <laughs> loaded. Despot loaded. Despot loaded. <laughs> <laughs> One of my frustrations is that with this point around independence and a lot of the countries getting independence at the same time, late 50s, early 60s, they weren't looking at their neighbours and being like, that really didn't work when that happened over there. I should probably learn their lesson. Do you know what I mean? It's yeah, there just, was, yeah. There was none of that. No. You would think though, wouldn't you? Yeah, it's interesting. Because you know I, mean? I try and have a look. Oh yeah, that person did that. So I'm I'm <laughs> definitely going to avoid that potential car crash in my life. You know, yeah, I, yeah. I don't know. I just yeah. I just have this sense of trying to minimize. <laughs> Maybe I shouldn't tweet stuff like that. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> you know, look what happened to that. Look person. what happened. But hey, here they go. Maybe it'll be different if I do it. Yeah. One year after the military coup, Syed Barre declared Somalia to be a socialist state, although Somalia didn't have a history of class conflicts that we often see within European settings. So in a sense, ethnic groups and tribalism was substituted for class as people would have higher or lower power based on their ethnic grouping and lineage. Barre's ideology was likened to scientific socialism with three buckets. Community development based on self-reliance, socialism based on Marxist principles, and Islam. So it's interesting to see that religious aspects are included within socialism, as often a common theme we see is that religion is equated to the right wing. But Barre explained in this case that socialism is not a religion, it's a political principle, as the country aligned itself with communist states. And these principles are more about Somalia's economic and military dependence on the Soviet Union, and the current government was introduced as a result of overthrowing a Western-style democracy, which, to be honest, I'm, I'm here for that. I'm here for it. At the time, Somalis found a common ground with Russia. They had a problem with the West because of their experience of colonisation, and what Western influence was doing to other Africans. So it looks as though they were looking out and being like, mm, maybe we should cut ties with the West. So they learned yeah, small we'll things, small, small, small. Join small. with Russia. Fair enough. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Who else are you going to join? Yeah, to be fair. The choice limit, was limited. <laughs> yeah, limited options. Yeah. You know, try something different. China was not the behemoth uh, mm. that it is now, although it's another, uh, that's an episode for another day. <laughs> Definitely. The foreign policy of the Somali government in Africa was to morally and materially support independence movements across the continent, and this was a policy shared with the Soviet Union. In 1974, Somalia signed a treaty of friendship with the Soviets. All these treaties always remind me of friendship bracelets. Yeah, <laughs> they sent them a friendship bracelet. <laughs> I mean, treaty of friendship. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> The Somali socialist government also aimed to establish Somali as the country's official language, meaning that written Somali needed to be introduced. After independence, official languages in Somalia were Italian and English in terms of administration and education. The SRC saw these differing languages as a threat to national unity. In 1971, the SRC established the Somali Language Committee, the SLC. Not the student loan company. Yeah, definitely not. This, this one is less triggering than that. Definitely. Those letters. Advice, and they basically advised this body to prepare textbooks for school, as well as introduce a Somali language dictionary. 
There was a debate at the time on which script would be used, Latin or Arabic, with many still divided over the issue after the SLC suggested it be used in their initial report. By January 1973, a Latin script would be used throughout Somalia, with all government officials given time to learn the new script fluently. A year earlier, in 1972, Somali's literacy rate stood at just 5%. The SRC introduced a cultural revolution with the aim of the whole population gaining literacy in two years. Two years? Yes, a bit of a challenge. Um, I mean, they didn't meet that, (laughs) but it it was ambitious. And it was all about empowering people to be able to read and write, which is what we want. Which is really good that they're regaining ownership of their own language and now having it in written form and everything. But I can't believe how crazy it would have been having people like, because they must have been yeah. taught <laughs> Italian and English. And they'd yeah. be like, okay, rewind. We now, oh my, that would drive me crazy. Yeah. During this time, modern Somali culture exploded with strong anti-colonial and pan-African themes. One music hit at the time was literally called Together Reject Colonialism. So they were really out there <laughs> fighting the good, like, wait, yes, we're only imagination country. the title Reject- just, yeah. you know. <laughs> Does what it says on the tin. <laughs> Let's do it. The Somali population was enthralled by the booming arts with music and theatre coming to the fore. Somalia also showed support to other African liberation movements taking place at the time. Universal education, healthcare improvements and improved infrastructure also happened as a result of Somali's socialism. Life during the 70s was described idyllically with every day like a weekend in Somalia. Again, that's what we've been living in. Every day (laughs) has felt like it. Well, just a long, the world's longest weekend. And it's just a copy. I'm living in a constant deja vu every day. (laughs) Just roll out and I'm like, oh, here we go again. Switch on my computer. Yeah. (laughs) Again, Mohammed Abdul Rahman described how we worked until midday. And when we woke up, we'd spent the evenings on the beach. We play football, swim in the sea and drink tea until Maghrib. What a nice life. It must be nice. To be fair, that's definitely much more idyllic than current situation. We're not spending evenings on the beach. Or, no, we are not. Do you know what I mean? Swimming in the sea. Increased literacy race, finishing work at 12pm. I'm sure you can guess what's coming. The first issue in the Ogaden War, from which this government never truly recovered. The second, human rights abuses. It's been said there was always a creeping authoritarian trend inside Barre's rule. And is it possible to incorporate socialism without then punishing dissidents? They yeah, always get to this point, don't they? Always. It's always a human rights abuse of some of yeah. them. You're just like, but why? The dissenting voices are obviously there for a reason. I think we do take that for granted that we can criticise our governments and not wake up in a jail cell. I guess it's just image control as well, because although we have these quotes saying about how idyllic it was, it would be a big sort of assumption to think that, oh, no, it was like that for everyone, because I'm sure there were still some issues, but it's trying to hide that. Yeah. And also all of these things couldn't have, especially the nice things that who is creating, there's definitely that kind of, there's an element of reality, which also needs to be reached of that. Yeah. Groups of people must have been paying for some of those consequences in order to be able to have those things as well. Just, it's too smooth. And I wonder whether that whole idea of him saying chilled lifestyle was also an element of showing their colonizers that we're doing well without you. Yeah. You know, we are, We've got our stuff together. Mm. If there's an element of just like pride in a sense as well and really yeah. wanting to show we've taken ownership, got our stuff together. Happy no days. one needs to know what's happening. What's happening, yeah. yeah. 
One of the reasons the Ogaden War took place was because of a pan-Somali concept, where Bahre wanted the Ogaden region, which is part of Ethiopia and has a predominantly Somali population, to be incorporated into the rest of Somalia in an idea called Greater Somalia, which was to unite all Somali-speaking nations in and around the Horn of Africa, where ethnic Somalis have lived and historically inhabited. The Ogaden was referred to by Somalis as Western Somalia, and in July 1977, the Ogaden War broke out and Ethiopia was in turmoil. As expected by September, Somalia controls 90% of the Ogaden. However, Soviets unexpectedly intervened in Ethiopia's favour with the backing of Cuban forces. Hmm. What a snake. <laughs> Why would you do this? After the friendship bracelets. Do you know what I mean? All ended in tears. You just <laughs> never accept a friendship bracelet. The Ogaden invasion failed, with Boris' military regime met with a serious blow. In 1978... Classic coup. Yes, there was a coup against Said Boris' government. Um, and it's estimated that 24 officers, 2,000 soldiers and 65 tanks were involved. However, the coup failed, result being that 17 alleged ringleaders were executed by firing squad. Again, an example of authoritarianism. And the majority of those executed were from a different clan. Professor Ahmed Ismaili Samatar, a Somali writer, explains how the Ogaden defeats delegitimized the Bahrain regime's rights to govern. It was a turning point in the sense that it exposed the bankruptcy of the regime in terms of public governance and management of the country. He adds, by the early 80s, you could see that the tension was thick in the air. People weren't so happy and the regime was heavily in debt. Internal squabbles came into the open, factionalism became rife, and Barre's government started to deteriorate and the creeping authoritarianism turned openly brutal. But I knew it. I knew they'd be broke. Yeah, like... Clearly there's an issue and this, this has been happening since the 80s. It wasn't perfect. It wasn't necessarily idyllic, particularly after the Ogaden War. And this is the image that they wanted to kind of protect. Mm -hmm. As Syed Barre saw his government's popularity diminish, Barre used his special unit known as the Red Berries to unleash terror against other clans within Somalia and any other dissident voices. On May the 23rd, 1986, Barry was involved in a car accident and was seriously injured. This didn't deter him despite being in his early 70s and suffering from chronic diabetes. Barry recovered after a month's recuperation and carried on in his position after the accident. He, he doesn't want to rest. I don't understand why <laughs> like, a lot of these leaders, especially I think, you just don't want to give up the power? Because I'm thinking even now, I'm like, okay, I've literally got, I'm giving myself 40 years and then I'm thinking it's time to bow out, chill a little bit have myself a little property abroad once I eventually buy one in the UK and then I'm never working again you're never seeing me picking up a phone or opening up a laptop <laughs> yeah. to send someone an email there's no more as my previous email had said no, you know no. nah none no, of that please advise no yeah <laughs> <laughs> none of that anymore but out here chronic diabetes and being in a car accident is that, that is no? definitely grounds for retirement <laughs> he still wants to carry on and despite Barre's obvious condition, he won an uncontested election with seven more years. Seven more uncontested because nobody else was... Oh, yeah, well, yeah, because no one else was <laughs> involved, were they? Ethiopia began supporting rebel groups in Somalia across the country, and Barre reacted in typical despot fashion, sending the Red Berets to bombard major Somali cities and kill civilians. By 1989, 
Torture and murder was commonplace in Mogadishu, with Somalia's Italian-born Bishop Salvatore Colombo, an outspoken critic of Barrow's regime, murdered. On July the 14th, 1989, the Red Berets killed 450 Muslims demonstrated in response to the arrest of their leaders. The following day, 47 people from the Isak clan were taken to a beach to the west of the city and executed. So this man is just going crazy right now. You know it's mad when a bishop is also killed. <laughs> Honestly. This, this guy had literally no... Well, the, bishop, he, the bishop had something to say against the government and that was it. You that, know? Was it. <sighs> that was it. That was it. On July the 6th, 1990, an anti borough demonstration at a football ground led to a riot, resulting in Barrow's bodyguards opening fire on demonstrators, killing 65 people. This wasn't enough for Barrow, with 46 prominent members of an opposition group, the Manifesto Group, sentenced to death. And earlier that year, the Manifesto Group had signed a petition calling for elections and improved human rights. So basic components of a competent democratic government. It's like he's forgotten everything he wanted the country to stand for yes. in the beginning and has just lost his mind. We went from idyllic beaches Do you know to what I mean? this, basically. Take us back there. Take me back. Mm-hmm. Take us back to Somali's version of Bora Bora. Yeah. <laughs> Take us back, guys. Your bodyguard is killing 65 people. Yeah. How many of those people were armed? Like, do right. you know, like, it's yeah. just... It's interesting that you raised that as well, because it, it kind of reminds me of what happened in Nigeria, you know, during the NSARS protests, where mm. they just kill demonstrators. And then that way, the demonstrators are then intimidated and think, we can't do that sort of thing again, because it yeah. will risk my life. And that's just a, a way for them to silence their opposition. In terms of things like that happening today, it's through things like the internet and everything and social media people it's documented it's evident you can't just be hiding this anymore you can't blatantly just destroy civilians who just want to voice their opinion and want to establish change Mm. and push for change and just shoot them down and be like okay yeah that's tomorrow like move on to the next day like that can't be done now Mm -mm. During the trial, demonstrators surrounded the court with Barrow for the first time dropping charges, hiding in his bunker at the military barracks to save himself from the wrath of the nation. On January the 26th, 1991, Barrow fled Mogadishu to southwestern Somalia, even attempting to return to power twice. He just, he just couldn't get enough. He then moved to Kenya but was met with opposition. And two weeks later, Barrow moved to Nigeria and remained there until his death in 1995. Damn, he could have spent that time in retirement. Do you know what I mean? It wasn't that deep, really, was it? What happened next? Mogadishu, Somalia's capital, fell into anarchy and civil war gripped Somalia. In 1991, the Somali national movement in the north succeeded and referred to this area of land as the Republic of Somaliland, a self-declared country but is recognised internationally as part of Somalia. A quote from an article written by Faisal Ali, a journalist, says, The problem with dictators is that they destroy everything they build. The legacy of his period remains contested among Somalis, many of whom remain caught between nostalgia in a country which has been without a central government for almost as long as it has had one, and those who were victims of the Bari regime's crimes. Wow, what can we say? I think he summed it up perfectly, to be honest. Yeah, definitely. And in terms of just, they've not had a government long enough, that's just crazy. They got independence in, say, 59. Yeah. And between men and kind of mid-90s, a little bit of enjoyment of this beach lifestyle and living it up 
to now just being killed and then that lack of stability throughout that time period I think definitely explains why people have this kind of like him or loathing kind of feelings towards him yeah no absolutely the quote around how dictators destroy everything they build is so interesting because we've we've seen it in the countries we've covered so far and I'm sure we'll come across more examples as we carry on but yeah it's it's just a shame because it could have been an interesting not so much of a regime, but it could have been an, in, you know, a nice a style of government that people could look up to. Yeah. Um, but sadly, this is the state and of of Somalia and and kind of the reason why they're in this predicament at the moment. Really interesting to yeah see how ah, another one just falls down. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Basically. Thank you for listening, guys. Don't forget to follow us on socials. So we are at It's a Consonant on Twitter and we are on at It's a Consonant pod on Instagram. And also a big thank you to our new supporters on Patreon, Libby and Lara. Thank you so much. This helps us to keep creating and researching more content for you all. So you can find the link to our Patreon in the episode show notes and in our podcast description. So yeah, um, thanks for listening to today's episodes why not leave us a review if you haven't done so already if you can leave a review of course all right thanks guys thanks for listening bye bye